Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. To some, a baby's babbling doesn't mean much, but it does. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Learn more at AutismSpeaks.org. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. Talk to your doctor about creating a plan that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at ManageYourBP.org. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. You can also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And you can follow me on Instagram, uh, Saturdays with Joy Keys there. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. I was on a brief hiatus, and I want to thank you for supporting the show during that hiatus and still doing downloads. Um, also, you can email me, um, Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com, if you have any questions or comments. I just got off the phone with J. Alex Brinson, actor from CBS's All Rise. Check that interview out. It'll be archived in a couple minutes. You'll be able to listen to that. And I'll be speaking shortly with Yale professor uh, Justin Driver about his book, The Schoolhouse Gate. In his book, he's discussing the Supreme Court rulings uh, related to public education, some of them good, some of them bad, and some of them got deadlocked. Um, There's so much in his book. It is so rich and detailed. I mean, thank God I have Kindle because if I didn't have Kindle and I had a a paper book, I think it would have been like, yellow, orange, blue, green, yellow, orange, blue, green, yellow, orange, blue, green. I was like highlighting so much stuff that I wanted to talk about today, but I only have 30 minutes with him. So, um, you know, we we can't talk about everything, but we'll try to get to to a few few items. Um, Let me see here. I think he was just calling, and I hope he calls back. Let me see. Good morning. Is this um, Justin? Yes, Joy. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, thanks a I lot for having you. me on. <laughs> I, I, oh, my God. Why did you write such a good book? <laughs> well, uh, that's very nice of you to say. I was hearing you say that you were, thank God, that you had the Kindle and everything. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a long book. It's a long book. That's another reason that you're, you know, thankful that you had the Kindle. That way you didn't have to lug this thing around with you, right? Yes. It's like 500 and some pages long, um, but there's a lot of little notes in there. So, so don't be, don't be uh, afraid, people, when you get the book. When I said 500, don't be afraid because it's so enriching. Like, you're going to sit there like, if you were on the beach trying to read his book, you would have got sunburned because you would not want to move. You would be like, what? They did what? He said what? Oh my God! It's like a soap opera, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really nice of you to say. I'm glad that you found it engrossing. It took me, you know, five years to write, but the origins of the book really go back to, 
my growing up in Washington, D.C., and going to public schools there, you know, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, and starting at a very young age, I went way across town. I was sort of a one-person busing program, and um, <laughs> I, I, I started thinking about, you know, why am I undergoing this really long journey that required me to be on a bus and two different subway lines and have a long walk? And, you know, what, what opportunities am I gaining as a result of this journey? And importantly, you know, what are my friends in the neighborhood not gaining as a result of going to the local public school? So I've been interested for a long time in these issues about, you know, equity and, and education and the law's role in shaping America's public schools. It's interesting that you said you've been thinking about this for a long time. Uh, my previous guest, J. Alex Brinson, the actor, he also mentioned at a young age starting to think about this does not make sense. Where I am and I'm reading about other people and things and seeing where they are, how can I get past this? You know, wh- what do I need to do to, to move forward in my life? And um, I think that's an interesting thing that when people say, oh, you just thought about this? No, it's been going and going in my head for a while. I just didn't say it loud, loud or maybe I didn't have the tools to say it um, because, you know, you hadn't gone to Yale or Harvard or any of these places yet. Um, but now you do. Let me just tell the audience a little more about you. You are a professor of law at uh, Yale Law School. I'll tell you, I was a little nervous. I was like, I better read this goddamn book because he's going to know <laughs> if I read the book or not. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, the New York Times book review um, hailed you. Uh, it was an editor's choice there. Um, and he went to Harvard Law School, okay, Harvard, okay, he went to Harvard, people. So, again, I was a little scared, okay. <laughs> but, um, so, so let's talk about that. When you talk about the trip to school, it reminds me of my daughter, um, and it reminds me of myself. Um, I live in Philadelphia, and um, I, I had to take a, a train, a long train ride from South Philly all the way up to Broad and Omni. Anybody from Philly knows it's quite a distance. But then when my daughter grew up, she went to the same school. I'll tell you what the school is later because it relates to the book. And she had to catch, if she took one bus to get to the train, one train to get downtown, and then the train from downtown to get to North Philadelphia. I was like, you know what? Damn, I, I really met, I, I really did that. I, should, <laughs> I really made her travel all those you know, I felt so bad, like, when I thought about it, like, oh, my gosh, she took three things to get to school. Sometimes really early in the morning, it would be dark. Was it ever dark when you had to go to school, Justin? Yeah, it was, actually, and it was quite a journey. It took me, you know, an hour to get to school from after the time I left my door. Maybe that's a conservative estimate. And on the one hand, that was a very challenging experience. On the other hand, though, um, it may have been a blessing in disguise in the sense that, uh, you know, this is, I'm growing up in the 1980s, long before the age of cell phones and everything. So what did I do when I was on public transportation? I would sort of read books and, you know, look at uh, my schoolwork on the way to, and by the time that I would return home from school in the afternoon, I was done with all of my homework and everything. And then I would watch a lot of TV. And I'm sure that if I had a shorter journey, I would have just been watching TV rather than doing my homework. So sometimes uh, things that are trying in the moment can turn out to be advantageous. Reading all those books probably prepared you for when you were clerking under 
uh, Judge Merrick Garland, under uh, Stephen Breyer, and under Sandra Day O'Connor. Some heavy hitters there. Um, do you think reading those books and, and being comfortable reading, because I know lawyers do a lot of reading, did that help you when you were clerking? No doubt. Uh, it requires a tremendous amount of reading. I felt really lucky to clerk for all three of the judges that you mentioned. I was with Judge Garland uh, on the D.C. Circuit. He, of course, was nominated uh, by President Obama to be on the Supreme Court, and the United States Senate did not give him even a hearing, which is a real shame in my view. Um, and then the following year, I was with Justice Breyer, and that was particularly relevant to my book, uh, because two of the cases that I analyze in the book uh, grew out of that term. Uh, one was a case called Parents Involved in Community Schools, which is really about the battle for the meaning of Brown versus Board of Education. And the other case, uh, its technical name is Morse versus Frederick, but nobody called it that. Instead, everybody called it Bong hits for Jesus, uh, which was the name of a the name of a sign that a 12th grade student in Alaska had, and so it was a free speech case about whether the school could punish him for for having that that message. Now, tell, there's an interesting thing I found out. Um, you have a watch. Where did you get this special watch from? Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> uh, yes. No, I don't actually. Tell tell me. You Justice Breyer. Tell me. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh, yes, you really did go deep. So, it's, mm. um, you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not my watch. Um, it is, however, uh, Justice Breyer's watch. I remember telling him that I was working on this book, and I said that my year with him made a big difference in trying to take on this, um, this project, and that his sort of example of working very hard on these cases, including especially the parents involved case where he wrote something like a 70 page dissent saying that the majority really had botched the meaning and corrupted the meaning of Brown versus Board of Education. And so I'm telling him about this book project and he starts taking off his watch and I'm thinking, my God, why is he taking off his watch? And uh, he turned it over and he showed me um, that it was the watch that the San Francisco school board gave to his father. His father was a long-term attorney for the San Francisco school board. And he said that uh, this was a really worthy project because um, uh, it's these decisions that really do shape individuals' lives in profound ways. And so I was really heartened by that message and his sort of validation of, of the of the worth of the project, even though I'm sure he doesn't agree with everything that I put in there. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's what you see throughout the book, that um, there are people on both sides of each of these cases. There are the context, meaning the time period, what was going on. This is one of the things that I like that you wrote in the book is, you wrote about what was going on in society at that time, and perhaps those things affected the Supreme Court's decision or not. Um, you also show how just from, from say, from three years, one, one time they made one hearing, a case, they, they were proving it, and then the next, like, three years later, all of a sudden for a different situation, but the same type of case, they, they flipped. Um, so you see all these things happening. And I, unfortunately, you see the negative side sometimes of people who, like, lambast and threaten people who try to stand up for their rights. There are people like Jehovah Witness uh, who didn't want to do the Pledge of Allegiance and 
the lady who didn't want to take the drug test, and it's just so many different things. And then people try to, like, throw them under the bus on the radio and the newspaper. Oh, they're horrible. They don't have any, they don't have any manners, all kinds of things. Uh, threatened to, they boycotted the store. I think, was that uh, Gobitis? Did they, uh, no. Yeah. They boycotted the store. Um, that's exactly right, just, Joy. Yeah. I really appreciate your bringing that up because one of the things I try to do on the book is focus on the genuine courage that the litigants demonstrate when they bring these cases to the Supreme Court because it typically involves students not only standing up against the school but also their surrounding communities. Um, I talk about the Tinker versus Des Moines case, which is the foundational free speech case out of Iowa where during the Vietnam War, some students want to wear black armbands in protest of the Vietnam War, and mm-hmm. uh, people get wind of this and are, are, are irate. They think uh, that you are a traitor if you dare to oppose the United States government in Vietnam. You know, the Tinker household was um, splattered with red paint. The front door was splattered with red paint. The idea was that only a communist or red would dare to oppose the a Vietnam commie, War. Yep. They got... Yeah, all sorts of harassing phone calls and letters. And so one of the things I really am trying to do is exactly, as you say, to tip my hat to the, uh, the, the, the students and their families who, who bring these cases. It really is. Um, it requires great courage, and I wanted to emphasize that. Well, let's start at the beginning, and this really gave me a bit of a chuckle in, in a way. Um, the, one of the first cases where they were going to close a black high school Can you tell the audience a little bit about that case? Yeah, of course. We are in the late 19th century in Augusta, Georgia. Um, The name of the case is coming. It's decided in 1899, some three years after Plessy versus Ferguson. And you and your listeners, of course, know that as the decision that upheld the doctrine of separate but equal. And in Augusta, Georgia, we can think of this case as being uh, raising the issue of separate and unequal in the sense that uh, they closed in Augusta, Georgia, the high school for black students while the high school for white students was uh, remained open. And you would think that that would have violated the 14th Amendment, even under the bad old days of Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, But the Supreme Court of the United States, in an opinion by Justice Harlan, who many people regard as the hero of Plessy versus Ferguson, the lone dissenter, uh, even he found that this did not violate the Equal Protection Clause. So, uh, and this is part of a, uh, grows out of a period of time where people think, well, the Supreme Court of the United States simply should not get involved in this arena. This is uh, something for the locality or at the highest level of the state to get involved in. But, you know, the, the thinking at the time was, the, we are judges, we are not school administrators, and so we dare not get involved in this area. Now, the interesting thing for me when I read it were the two, Cummings and I think it's, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, La Davies, the two fathers who, who tried to file, um, they were very light-skinned, almost to the point you mentioned of passing to be white. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a really fascinating story where, um, you know, these two men are behind the lawsuit 
And these are very much black elites at the time. You know, the idea that people of all different races, by the way, white people included, were receiving a high school degree. That was a very rare thing at this time. Um, And so they bring this lawsuit uh, saying that you should close the school for the white students. um, And they lose this lawsuit, uh, Mr. Cummings uh, and his partner, And uh, rather than stay in Georgia, they decide to flee to greener pastures, and they will ultimately decide to pass as white and uh, went on to make a decent amount of money doing so. (laughs) That was the crazy – and this is what I love. You make – you have the hard-hitting facts in the book, but you also show other things that are going on in people's lives, in the community, in the country – as well, to try to give context to what's happening. Um, another uh, case that I really enjoyed, and, and only this is, this is personal reasons, I'll tell a short story. I was probably third grade, and I had gotten some money. I'm not going to say where at the moment. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go across the street from my school and get some, ho- I got a hoagie and I got some um, um, Edmonds donuts and things, and I shared them with my classmates. I think I might have did that more than one day. Well, I got caught, <laughs> and I got suspended. Oh, no. um, yeah, and it, that that memory came up when I read about the uh, Lopez um, suspension issue um, in the book that was in Chapter 2 and uh, about due process. I didn't have any due process. It was just like you weren't supposed to go. You weren't supposed to leave the school grounds. You're wrong. You got suspended, and my parents got called, and that was that. And, of course, I got a spanking when I got home, and that was because I took the money from the rent money that my parents had. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, that's Yeah, I didn't know it was the rent money. I didn't know at the time. But anyway, so let's talk about – Oh, please, you, you, please, Joyce, you, you, please. Yeah, no, I, th- so when I read the thing about Lopez, I was like, yeah, nobody talked to me or explained anything, and was it that deep that I needed to get suspended from school? Really? Um, so in the Lopez case, let's, you talk about, tell them what happened in the Lopez case. Yeah, the, your story is a really interesting one because it fuses together the two issues that I talk about in Chapter 2, thinking about due process with pensions and then also corporal punishment as administered by the school, right? I mean, um, so in Lopez, the Supreme Court is answering the question as to whether students receive some due process rights before they are suspended and some people thought, no, there shouldn't be uh, any sort of hearing. And the Supreme Court of the United States issues a decision that says uh, there is a right to some due process. It's not much. Uh, you know, there is, a, in effect, notice of the charge against you and a brief opportunity to explain yourself. Um, so that's a really important decision. And many people thought that um, it. Uh, sort of augured well, it boded well for the decision involving Ingram versus Wright, which deals with corporal punishment. Uh, People thought, Mm -hmm. well, if you get due process rights before you're suspended, there's no way in the world that uh, public school administrators are going to be able to use a foreign object to be able to strike students uh, 
who get out of line, but the Supreme Court of the United States, only two years after Ingram said, uh, sorry, two years after Lopez uh, said, um, there are no due process rights before you are beaten with a two-foot-long wooden paddle, and um, this shouldn't even be regarded as punishment for purposes of the Eighth Amendment, which, again, prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. So if there's any single issue that I care about, it's this uh, one, Ingram versus Wright, and the issue of corporal punishment, because I'm sorry to report that schools continue to hit students throughout the United States. And Yeah, I think it's like 20, at least 20 school districts I read or something that have the, the the paddling thing going on still. I mean, as a parent, I would be mortified. I mean, what happened to Ingram? Uh, let me just tell the audience. He was restrained by several people and got 20 paddle licks and to the point where he had to go to the hospital. Also, Jessica Serafin, who was another person who got paddled until she bled, now she was not able to bring her case to the Supreme Court. Can you tell me why, like, what was there? I mean, I just was like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, Ingram, it really is a horrific story where he's in Tampa, Florida, and he's on a stage with some of his friends. He, you know, doesn't get off the stage quickly enough from the vantage point of school administrators, and they decide they're going to hit him with this two-foot-long wooden paddle. They hit him so ferociously, he got 20 licks that he got medical attention, as you say. He had a six-foot, uh, pardon me, a six-inch bruise uh, on his derriere that was tender, purplish, oozing fluid. I mean, just a horrific set of events, and you would have thought that this would have violated the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Um, uh, the court didn't see it that way. Seraphin is a much more recent case where she, uh, not unlike perhaps a young Joy, left campus in order to walk across the street and get herself something to eat. And this violated the campuses, uh, uh, the school's closed campus rule. And so they said, we're going to hit you. She's just days, uh, you know, before she graduates from high school. And she says, oh, no, I'd rather withdraw than be hit by what they called old thunder, right, this really long paddle. Um, And Mm. she also had to receive medical attention. She uh, petitioned the Supreme Court in order to hear her case, and uh, the Supreme Court of the United States hears, uh, agrees to hear very few cases. They have a discretionary docket, so there have to be four members of the Supreme Court to what's called grant certiorari, and uh, they don't explain themselves when they decline to hear it. But again, I think you'd be hard-pressed to identify a more pressing issue uh, for the Supreme Court of the United States to handle than students, the sole remaining group of people in American society who governmental officials can strike with impunity. Yeah, uh, that's that's why I, I brought up my little story of crossing the street, because it also – when reading about Jessica, I was like, my God, thank God my school wasn't like that. Um, another case that brought up memories for me is this long distance going to school. And the school that I went to was Girls High. Oh, wow. Uh, across oh, the street, yes, from, from Central. And that is in the, uh, I think it's Borkheimer versus School District of Philadelphia. That was the case. Um, yeah. And talk to the audience about that case. Yeah, it's a really interesting case involving a young woman called Susan Borchheimer, who was 
very interested in attending Central High School, which at the time was all male. And she sues and says, you know, I just didn't want to go to girls. I didn't feel like I could, uh, you know, attend that school. And she says not be damaged in some way. She really wanted to go to Central, which, as I understand it, is, um, you know, a sort of magnificent uh, public school with a long lineage of excellence. And they don't want to admit her. Her case makes it to the Third Circuit, which is the level just below the Supreme Court. And the majority says, well, the real question here is not so much whether Susan Vorchheimer can go to this school, but whether every public school in the United States needs to be co-ed. Students Mm -hmm. only decide to attend Central, or girls for that matter, by volunteering to do so. And in the name and effect of diversity, uh, we should uh, permit some people to go to single-sex public schools. So she loses um, in, uh, in the Third Circuit. It makes its way to the Supreme Court, but as you suggested, uh, the Supreme Court deadlocks, and that has the result of affirming the decision below but not creating precedent. Eventually, Central High School will change its approach in the 1980s in a uh, state Uh, judicial decision rather than a federal judicial decision. And um, single-sex schools have come roaring back to life, actually, uh, in many urban communities. Um, They had dwindled to a tiny number in the 1990s, something like, you know, three or four public schools. But now there are hundreds of these schools. And the Supreme Court of the United States has never weighed in on whether Uh, you know, single-sex public schools violate the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. Yeah, that's that was um, interesting. Girls High is a very good school. I went there and I turned out okay. And my daughter (laughs) went there and she turned out okay. Now, of course, my daughter (laughs) does have some comments about, you know, going there after the fact. But my daughter ended up getting a, like, scholarship that helped her pay for her her college by going to Girls High. Um, another case real quick, we have a couple of minutes left. I'm sure I'm going to go over because it's just, again, so rich of a book. But we got to talk about Brown versus Board of Education. And what was interesting in there was that there's a Brown 2. Now, I had no idea what – now, can you talk to the audience about Brown 1 versus Brown 2? Because I didn't even know about Brown 2. Of course. Um, so Brown is the decision from 1954 where the Supreme Court asked the question – do racially segregated schools violate the Equal Protection Clause? In a unanimous opinion, Chief Justice Warren writes the opinion for the court, and he says separate educational facilities are inherently unequal, and uh, so they do violate the 14th Amendment. They save for the following year, uh, Brown II, the question of remedy. Uh, you know, what's going to happen? Typically, when there's a constitutional violation, the remedy is ordered uh, immediately. But here they say this is a tricky issue and we need to save until 1955 the question of remedy. Uh, this will ultimately be known, Brown 2 is known by the shorthand, all deliberate speed which is to say public schools need to be uh, desegregated with all deliberate speed. Now, what in the world does that mean? Many people would say that's a contradiction in terms. If there's deliberation, there's not enough speed. 
Uh, and so where many people would regard Brown one as being a sort of heroic decision in ending the legalized subordination of black people and giving us citizenship, uh, people would identify Brown too as a villainous decision in the sense that it um, uh, did not order an immediate end to the Jim Crow reality. Yeah, it's um, so amazing the things that you aren't taught in school, and that is one of them. Um, I also thought was interesting, and this is a big problem I have, about the taxation issue and the funding that schools get. Um, It's ridiculous. Yes. um, You know, schools receive wildly disparate levels of funding, This is an issue that made its way to the Supreme Court in the 1970s, and many people before the case made its way there thought, of course, the Supreme Court of the United States is going to say that it's illegitimate and unconstitutional to have uh, students in poor neighborhoods receive a lot less money per pupil. Um, But that's not how the Supreme Court of the United States saw it. It was a five-to-four decision written by Justice Powell, And he says, well, they're not, you know, the students in the poor areas aren't absolutely denied a public education. It's just a relative level of deprivation. Um, And so many people. uh, (laughs) Wait, wait. Did did you just say a relative level of deprivation? I'm sorry. Sorry. That was funny. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, Many people would say that, of course, the students from the more modest neighborhoods are those who need the most, right? Um, That is to say, if and this is especially pertinent these days, um, you know, if you don't have access to, say, a computer at school and you're a child from a modest background, you're not going to have the computer at home either. Uh, And so many Mm -hmm. people would say not only should there be at least equivalent levels of funding, if anything, uh, students at the uh, in the, in the, from the more modest neighborhoods should receive greater levels of funding. But, um, and, I, you know, the Supreme Court rejected the challenge. I am happy to report that there have been some efforts uh, to bring these sorts of lawsuits in state courts, and the state Supreme Courts are interpreting the state constitutions, and there, it has resulted in more equal funding in states like Texas and Connecticut. Now, I noticed that a lot of cases were five to four or, or, or very close so that, you know, history could have been completely changed if one judge, you know, went to the other side. And why do you think that is? Why do you think it's so close? Is it because of um, the, 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 the people being, re, you know, Republican or liberal or conservative and they try to balance the court? Is that why it's always so close? Is it, is it personal reasons? I mean, why do you think it, because a lot of these cases, you were like five, four, five, four, da, da, da. Yeah. Now there was one that was like a unanimous, um, which was, uh, you know, the Brown um, was unanimous. But um, then when they did Brown two, Thurgood Marshall, you were mentioning in the book, you know, was like, yo, this is crazy. You know, I'm through. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> he didn't say that, but that's what I'm saying. I'm sure in his mind. You know, he was just like, I could see him slamming a book down in his office. Like, what the Frick, you know, <laughs> did we not just do something else before? You know, but anyway, yeah, yeah. so why it's do you a, think it's a good so question. close? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, these days at the Supreme Court of the United States, um, there are five 
uh, Republican-appointed justices and four Democratic-appointed justices, and the Democratic-appointed justices tend to be uh, side with the liberals and the five GOP-appointed justices tend to side with the conservatives. But that's a relatively new dynamic. At the time that I am uh, writing about, I do write about the modern era, but you know, many of the cases are from the 1970s and 1990s, things like that. Um, the divide, the partisan divide on the Supreme Court was not nearly so stark. And so, um, you know, Justice John Paul Stevens was appointed by President Ford, but he would vote with the liberals in these sorts of cases. And that would be true of Harry Blackman, who was appointed by uh, President Nixon. So I think that the reason that these cases are so close, and we should also say bitterly divided, um, is that people have very differing conceptions about what public schools are for. Our public, uh, they, they will often agree at a high level of generality and say public schools are for creating citizens, but they have very different conceptions about what citizenship entails. Uh, the liberals um, will say that, uh, you know, if, if we're creating citizens and uh, in the context of free speech, students need to be able to mix it up. That ours is a big, diverse, contentious society and people need to be able to mix it up in the school as well. It would be odd to have uh, schools just tell students what they could say. The conservatives tend to be focused more on keeping things orderly. And they say, you know, they have a sort of report card conception of citizenship where um, they, they say, you know, you need to be obedient and follow orders. And if the mm -hmm. school administrator tells you to do something, that's the end of the discussion. And they want um, great power for the police to be able to search the students and these sorts of ways. And, of course, that has tremendous implications for our school-to-prison pipeline. Well, that's something that you talk about, the, the, the school-to-prison pipeline, where you talk about the um, police, the so-called police, they're called school, um, I can't think of the name right now, but they're school like resource the officers. School. Yeah, school, school resource school officers. School resource yeah. officers. I was like, really? Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I, when I read that, I was like, what? It's the police. Okay. But that yeah. ability to harass students, actually there was a show I was watching um, and there was a scene where there was a white teacher, she was going into an urban school to teach and um, she had told one of the ki kids to, to leave the classroom because he threw something at her and wasn't paying attention. Well, he got thrown up against the wall uh, by two of these school resource officers uh, violently searched. He didn't get stripped searched because he was in the middle of the hallway. And they were like, if we find you again, luckily you don't have anything on you, but next time, blah, 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 blah. And she comes out in the hallway, this white teacher, and it's like, what, is, what the heck are you doing? Like, yo, get off of him. And they were like, you need to stay out of this, ma'am, you know, blah, blah, blah. So um, that story made me think about that TV show, but in real life, those things do happen. Um, and I've, I've been in public high schools and I remember I was in Trenton High School when I was doing some work for University of Penn Research Center, and the kids are can be great, a little rough. There are really positive kids in the classroom, and then there's the other kids that have no respect for authority. And I had a kid throw something at me, and I was like, "You need to get out," you know. <laughs> and I, I mean, I was like, "I'm not taking it. Like, I'm not the one. You might have done that to somebody else. I'm not the one." But it brought that story up in my mind. How can we, if you want to say, police children these days when a lot of children don't have a home role model 
that says you need to uh, respect authority, what can the schools do other than these resource officers? What are they supposed to do? It's a really good question. This term school resource officer sounds to me like an Orwellian term because exactly as you say, these are uniformed police officers And I do think that uh, there's way too much of a tendency to transform uh, what should be a school disciplinary matter into a uh, sort of criminal matter. And uh, many of your listeners will recall the events in South Carolina where a student was on her phone and a school resource officer came in and flipped her out of her chair quite violently. Mm, I remember that video. uh, It was incredibly distressing and it got a lot of attention. What a lot of people fail to recognize is that she was subsequently charged under something called a disturbing schools statute. Uh, And the language in South Carolina and many other places is incredibly broad, including there's some talk about, you know, if you behave in a way that's obnoxious in a school and how many (laughs) adolescents could sort of plead innocent to, uh, you know, a charge of obnoxious behavior in a public school. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I say that this is something that there should be some sort of school discipline, uh, hopefully, by the way, in the form of an in-school suspension rather than an out-of-school suspension, um, in order to make sure that the classroom can be run in, uh, in an efficient way. Uh, so, but I, I do think that often involving elementary school students, we'll see uh, police officers brought in, including I write about a case out of New Mexico where a young man is belching loudly in gym class repeatedly as one does of course right and um, they call him the they call him the school resource officer and you know this this young man uh, is handcuffed and put in a police cruiser and uh, you know this is uh, just an incredibly I mean, he's scared out of his mind probably like of you course know, the, the whole of thing. course and and you know the thing is that students are being uh, taught lessons about their role in society and I do worry that uh, having kids in urban schools be part of a police surveillance state. Uh, sort of softens them up for when they are out on the street and just sort of expect uh, the state to surveil them in intense and distressing ways. So, um, you know, school resource officers are a relatively common uh, event and they have had, in my view, pernicious consequences for our schools. Uh, This is the last thing I'm going to say because we did go over and I appreciate you staying on. But one of the things I had to do, I was working with some teen boys, 13 to 18, and they were uh, in a residential facility. And I would meet with them once a week and and teach them different life skills and have different guests in and talk to them and things like that. One of the things that I had to look up is how to handle yourself if you get stopped by the police. And uh, these were African-American and Latino boys. And this is something that um, white parents don't have to do with their kids as much as African-American or Latino because the rates of kids being picked up who are black and brown are greater and they have to be prepared and know their rights, but also still at the same point somehow be respectful. So it was a little sad when when you have to do that um, with your child 
and they I feel like they, they, they lose a little light, and then when you start talking, I'm like, damn, well, I have to deal with the police. Some of them have already dealt with the police, and in a sense, because they were in this residential facility, and they were in there for, for truancy. Some of them were in there just for truancy because they hadn't come to school for a certain long period, but that says to me there's something wrong at home. Um, many of those kids end up going into regular prisons. So we had people who had been in prison to try to come talk to them, like, you need to stop whatever you're doing now and make a 360. Otherwise, you're going to end up where I was. Um, so I agree with you in the book about that pipeline. Is it's it, a great, is it's a a great true point, pipeline. Joy, and it's, it's one of the reasons that I wrote the book, uh, The Schoolhouse Gate, so that um, students could be able to understand themselves as rights holders uh, when they are in school. Um, you know, I think a lot of teachers are interested in this area, but they have uh, difficulty uh, sort of accessing the material. And so I wrote the book in a way to be accessible to not only teachers, but also students. And I really do want students to view themselves as not only the objects of law, but also the subjects of law. And by that, I mean that they can exercise their rights in an affirmative way, including the rights of freedom of speech, rather than only thinking about themselves as rights holders with respect to, say, the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment, Fourth Amendment dealing, involving cruel and, uh, pardon me, uh, unreasonable searches and seizures, and the Fifth Amendment involving the right against self-incrimination. You know, it's, it's dangerous to have our black and brown kids uh, think of themselves uh, primarily as uh, sort of suspects before the law rather than mm-hmm. um, themselves, as, as I say, as right hold, rights holders. Um, this is my last thing, and I want to thank you so much for, again, going over. Um, one of the things that I think kids need to be taught, and this is dealing with judges, on a local level, going to vote for judges when they get older, on a local level, voting for their state representatives, those are people that are closer to home and make t- decisions that are closer. And many of the cases in your book started at the lower courts and then went to the Supreme Court. So um, that voting power is also very important. Yeah, I completely agree that voting is a big part of the story. And we should also say that the federal courts, including the Supreme Court, are responsible for establishing a constitutional floor. But there's nothing that prevents localities, including school boards or state state legislatures or uh, state courts, from offering additional layers of protection. And that's something that you see in this area uh, repeatedly, where they say, um, as I said, with respect to school funding, hey, we're going to have more equally funded schools in this state as a result of the uh, state constitution. Or, you know, we're not going to have strip searches on school premises no matter what. State legislatures Mm -hmm. have said that. And so I do think that it's important to realize that ordinary citizens, of course, have a role, as you suggest, Joy, to play in exercising the uh, power of the vote in order to shape our schools and our broader society. Thank you so much, Professor Justin Driver, for coming on today, for sharing your knowledge with us. I will be giving away copies of your book I told people to follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. Also on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Listen, learn, read this book, 
and enjoy the book because it is not all dreary law writing. There's some comical stories in there, um, but it's just such useful information for adults as well as for students, as um, uh, Professor Driver was saying. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Joy. It's been a real pleasure. Have a good day. All right, I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. Talk to your doctor about creating a plan that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. To some, a baby's babbling doesn't mean much, but it does. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Learn more at AutismSpeaks.org. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.